Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. ماذا فعل يا رامزديل؟ تشاكاس ترجعها تلعب هنالك مع ايميل سميث الكرة البعيدة البحث عن اوباميون كرة ممتازة روه رب 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 ايميل سميث عديرة التسديدة با 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 اوباميون جوجل رامزديل This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arse blog. No, the wrong one, isn't it? Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, you were nearly on the wrong podcast there. Phew. Wow. I'm in the right place at the right time. Whew. Uh, yeah, how's it going? Yeah, good. It's an average day. It's an average day. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit. It is a bit. After a uh, nil-nil draw with Brighton uh, on Saturday evening, it is less uh, great than it was last weekend, that's for sure. It is. It is. But, you know, it, it's quite. It's a, it's a come down, really. But here we are. Here and we are, yeah. At least we didn't lose. At, le- at least we didn't lose. There's a tattoo mm-hmm. for everybody to get on their uh, arms right now. <laughs> at least we didn't lose. There is something to that, you know. Uh, I know sure. that it's not always the most popular uh, point of view to take, but there is, I think, something to that. Um, look, it's a weird situation to be in right now when you're trying to analyze Arsenal. I wrote about this a bit today on the blog. We're... we're we're sort of having to take little chunks of the season and try and extract what we can get mm. from them. And those first yeah. three games, as we've said, and everybody has said, not good enough, uh, unacceptable, disastrous, whatever you want to call it, that's pretty much set in stone. And we were looking at these next sets of fixtures as the ones which might begin us to uh, begin to tell us a little something about the team, where it's going, how it's operating, etc., etc. So... Four games, three wins, one draw, three clean sheets, one of those wins with a North London derby. I mean, I think that's probably around about what people would have said, well, that's what we want from these games. That is oh, yeah. that is like, if we're going to be Arsenal, if we want to set some standards, if we want to have some measure of of, you know, where this club should be based on the fixtures that we had, that's what we would expect. 10 points from 12, et cetera, et cetera. So on that basis, those games, I think we, we did more or less what we were supposed to. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if the Brighton game had been the first of those four and we'd finished on the Spurs game mm. going into this international break all elated and over the moon. It's it, You know, it's like a book. Chapter one was horrible and I mm. wanted to put the book down or put it, set it on fire. Chapter two, I'm like, oh, okay. But we, we don't know how the full story is going to play out yet. Yeah. And I, I think kind of how I feel coming out the weekend is sort of, you know, you, you sort of think, well, who are this Arsenal team? Are they the team we saw get absolutely battered 5-0 against Manchester City? Or are they the team we saw take Tottenham apart 3-1? And I think what the Brighton game does is just kind of place those two in context and in perspective mm. a bit and make you think, well, they're probably not really quite one or the other. You know, they're somewhere in that grey space in between, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um and I think you're right to point out that it does feel a bit anticlimactic, having enjoyed last week as much as we did, you know, winning the derby as well as we did, to go to a team like Brighton and, you know, not not really threaten in any significant way. I think you can play a nil-nil draw and still come away um from a game and think, okay, well, maybe we could have won that. But I think, to be completely fair a point was as much as we deserved and maybe based on the the ebb and flow of the game, it was mostly ebb from an Arsenal perspective and much more flow from Brighton that we mm. were a little bit lucky to escape with a point. However, there's some merit in that. We might we might talk about it. But yeah, it's um it was a tough it was a tough evening, wasn't it, in fairness. There was a lot uh, that didn't quite go as well as it should have. Definitely. And actually you know, talking about the Tottenham game, I remember saying last week, oh, once we were 3-0 up, I just sort of wanted it to be over. Mm. And at a similarly early point in this game, I just sort of wanted it to be over. Like, mm. I I never really felt like this was going to be Arsenal's day from quite early on. I just kind of was like, mm. if we can get out of here with something, then that would be good because they're better than us today. Um and, you know, I know that that will be an uncomfortable reality for a lot of people, but uh, I think that was the situation. I think they were, on the day, the better team. I think that's true. Um, it does raise questions about what we could have done about that, whether we could have been more... Um, whether the manager, for example, could have done more from the sidelines to try and change the dynamic of the game, mm -hmm. some of the decisions that we uh, made in terms of how we played. I know we'll probably come on to the idea of playing out from the back, and we didn't do a great deal of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was quite... You look at what happened in the opening minute or so, opening couple of minutes, Bakayo Saka took on Dan Byrne, six foot seven Dan Byrne, and if he's going to get any joy out of that player at left back, it is by getting him behind him with the ball at his feet or running onto a ball in behind him. It's not that Byrne is, you know, particularly slow. There are some big players who are very slow, and I don't think he's necessarily one of those. But if he's running back towards his own goal, that's where Saka has a bit of an advantage, as he showed in those opening couple of minutes, beat a couple of men, had a shot, wasn't a great shot. But, you know, in the second half, we're lumping balls towards Bukayo Saka, who's what, mm. five foot nine, toward, and he's never going to get any change out of Dan Byrne in that kind of scenario. So there are, I think, reasonable questions as to, um, 
our in-game management. But on the day, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that Brighton were the better side. And I don't know that it's sh- not that it shouldn't be a surprise. Um, I think a lot was made, wasn't it, of their great start to the season. They could have, uh, with a win, gone joint top or mm-hmm. would have been behind Chelsea on goal difference with the same amount of points if they'd won the game. So the fact that they have had such a good start to the season uh, and made life difficult for us shouldn't be a surprise. I don't necessarily mean that Brighton being better than us shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, look, they've had a great start to the season and we knew it was going to be difficult, and it was, and I don't think we helped ourselves in, in some ways either. Yes, I think I think both things can be true. I mean, you know, we lost at Brentford on the opening day and I think some people said then, you know, they'll go on and beat some decent teams in the Premier League this season or certainly give them lots of problems. Thus far, that's proven to be the case. Mm. They got another really good win at the weekend. I think Brighton, you know, they beat Leicester a few weeks ago. Um, Although, to be fair, Leicester aren't playing great at the present time. Mm. I I think they are a decent outfit and one who are on a good run in terms of results. It was interesting, I was sat next to Andy Naylor, who covers Brighton for The Athletic, and he was not confident coming into this game. He just said... I feel like this might be a game too far for Brighton. I've mm. seen a lot of Arsenal in the last few weeks. We're missing some big players, you know, Welbeck, Basuma. Um, our performances maybe haven't been quite as good as our results. And he was like, I think this is going to be a 3 1 Arsenal win. I think Arsenal are going to have too much for Brighton. Wow. Um, he got that wrong. <laughs> he got that wrong in a big way. And afterwards, I was like, where does that rank in terms of Brighton's performances this season? He was like, that's comfortably the best they've played, you know? Mm. Um, And I think he was really surprised and pleasantly surprised by how well they played. But I think as well, you have to say that Arsenal didn't produce to the same extent that they have in these recent fixtures, you know? And I know the wins against Norwich and Burnley were narrow margins in terms of the Mm. scoreline, but I think the performances were substantially better than this one um and and i do think that so much of it in my eyes did come down to the press that brighton put on us and our inability really to deal with that does does that worry you in the in the wider uh, context of of what's going on because we saw at brentford their high press terrified us to the point where we did pretty much the same thing that we did at Brighton, uh, which was kick long from our goal kicks. Uh, you know, I think there were some some similarities uh, between the Brentford game and the, Bright, uh, the Brighton game in a way, um, just in terms of the, the atmosphere and the, uh, the conditions and things like that. Um, but Brentford pressed high and we decided, no, we're not going to play any of this uh, playing around at the back stuff. Similarly, Brighton pressed high and, and Ramsdale, I don't know if it was entirely his decision or if it was an executive decision from the sidelines or if there were instructions as to what to do if Brighton pressed on a consistent basis. But, you know, we talked last week, didn't we, about the the goal that we scored. The Aubameyang goal against Spurs came from being a bit brave, uh, brave slash slightly foolish, fortunate uh, with that pass to to Shaka and what have you. But the reward for that was the goal. And there just didn't seem to be any sense that Arsenal were prepared to to take that risk or bring that risk-reward equation into play. Maybe it's an away game thing. I don't know. But just, you know, when you think about 
what we think about the way Mikel Arteta wants the team to play and how we see them play when put under that kind of pressure. Do, does that um, give you any pause for thought? Definitely, it does. I do think Ramsdale has gone long quite frequently, mm-hmm. actually, like probably more than people might imagine. Or, or, or I guess not, actually, if they've seen the games. I mean, it, you know, a big part of the game against Spurs was looking long as well and how well Aubameyang did in, in those duels. And we talked about him winning, what was it, six of eight headers, I think, on the day in the derby. Um I think he found the Brighton centre-halves uh, more difficult. You know, Duffy, Dunk and uh, Dan Byrne, the shortest of them is six foot three and they're mm. all pretty strong in the air. Um, so I think that was an issue. I, I was sat behind the bench and I did not get the impression at any point that Arsenal were going against instruction in terms of going long. Sure. In fact, you could see coaches kind of indicating, you know, look here, look, you know, look out to the wings. Look, mm. It was always, they were always sort of seemed to be tallied up with what the players were doing. I think there was a big distinction between dead ball goal kicks and, and open play. Sure. Um, and it's still, you know, it's interesting actually. It's quite hard to get a stat for how many goal kicks a team has in a game, but it felt like Arsenal had a lot and every single goal kick I mean, one of the things about Brighton having 20 shots, I know many of them didn't go near the goal, but every single goal kick was like a point for them to reset their press. And we just couldn't make that situation work. You know, if, mm. if the ball was in open play, we were all right with the centre-halves and we could get around the press then. But from a goal kick, they had four men inside the final 30 yards. And I just don't think we had the confidence to do it. Mm. Um, and that is a little bit... I'm not going to say alarming, but I think it's maybe the first sign from this new defence of uncertainty with that approach. Um, is it uncertainty d- or is it a kind of a safety first? Um, yeah, it could be safety first. I mean, I, I, the other thing I would say is that going long generally has been more successful for us. And I think, you know, Ramsdale did a, an interview after the game where he spoke about his kicking being below par. I think that's right. I think it was. Um, I don't know if the wind was a factor in that, mm. but it felt like it was a lot less accurate than usual. And I also felt that, I mean, look, like I said, Aubameyang didn't win a thing really against the centre-halves. I think he won one of six duels or something like that. Um and, and But I think that's okay. Like, I don't necessarily expect him to win those balls. I think what was a problem for Arsenal is when they went long, it was the second ball they didn't win. You yeah. know, Aubameyang doesn't have to get to it. If, if Dunk heads it down or whatever, but you need to be quick on that second ball. And I think that's where Arsenal really came off second best. And it just meant Brighton coming back at us time and time again. Yeah, I mean... There were times, I think, when we were too casual in possession. We certainly didn't compete well enough for those second balls. Mm. And I think, yeah, look, Aubameyang winning a load of headers against Spurs defense was was notable because it doesn't happen a great deal. It's not really yeah. his game. So, no. you know, that's not I'm not critical of him at all for for not, you know, out jumping their gigantic center halves or anything like that. Uh, where I did have an issue was when the ball did come to him, too many of the passes, too many of the layoffs were were just not good enough. Um, and I think we had a problem right through the spine of our team, to be honest. Thomas Partey, 
nowhere near as good as he can be. Martin Odegaard, nowhere near as good as he can be. Aubameyang, nowhere near as good as he can be. I think Saka, despite that bright start, looked tired. He looks like a tired young man to me, and I completely understand why that would be the case, if that is the case, because they flashed up a, a stat on the screen at one point, a uh, little caption, you know the way they do, and it was Bakayo Saka, mm. the only player to have featured in all nine of Arsenal's games this season. Right. And yeah. I was well, I was like, come on. I mean, this is a guy, a young man who played a lot of football last season, went all the way to the Euro 2020, but in 2021 final, had a fairly traumatic uh, experience, and he's straight back into it without any real rest or chance of recuperation. And we talked about maybe he needs something to kickstart his season, but maybe he also needs just a little rest. Maybe he needs a little time to to consider. So when you think about Partey not being good, Odegaard not being good, Aubameyang not being good, and Saka not being good on the day, it makes it very difficult to to try and change the dynamic of a game which is going against you. And in particular, I think Partey in midfield, Partey and Odegaard, the two in midfield who are crucial to us exerting any control, uh, you know, from those midfield areas, it just wasn't happening for either of them. So that was that was a, a significant factor, I think, in our inability to really get on top of uh, the game or to try you know the way games fluctuate one team will have a spell and then there'll be like a like five minutes of nothing and then another team will get on top for 15 we never really had that and i don't think we were capable of it because the players that we needed to do that just just didn't perform at the level we know they can yeah i think that's right and you know in the absence of granite shaka you're really looking to thomas party we need him in that situation, you know, whether you think we miss Shaka or we need Shaka or whatever it might be, if he's not there, you're really looking at Thomas Partey and he needs to deliver. It, we all know he has the ability and he had a really bad day. Mm. Um, you know, there was a stat about, I saw an opter about how many jewels he lost and it was it was not what you come to expect from Thomas Partey. Mm. Um, he's a guy who's incredibly competitive it feels in in most situations so yeah I, I thought he yeah so he had 12 duels and he won 16 percent of them which i think wow, is that's not good two yeah so yeah so you know he was kind of sort of second to everything his touch his passing wasn't um as crisp as you might like i think the same is true of martin odegaard i mean those two especially without Shaka, are kind of the engine room of this team in terms of getting the ball moving in terms of developing the play and they were kind of not really present in the game. Um, so it was, I, I don't know if kind of confidence was sapped by how poorly we were playing, but I, I almost felt like there was a kind of psychological shift to, as you said, a kind of safety first approach, mm. you know, what we have, we hold. And actually, like, I take some pride and satisfaction from that. I do think... There is, if you want to find a positive in this game, I think that kind of determination from the defensive unit within the 18-yard box, we played very well. You know, we defended uh, as the last man pretty well, um, but it, it didn't really feel like we ever had the confidence or the ability to get much more going 
in front of that? No, we could, we couldn't. And the change I think he made brought on Pepe for Odegaard uh, didn't really make a huge difference. Um, you know, Bamiyang came off, and I don't think he could have had any complaints whatsoever on the night. Uh, we don't have anyone to replace Thomas Partey, even when he's playing as poorly as he did, you know? So Mm. I just wonder, look, I think there are obviously wider questions about Mikel Arteta and how well he can set up this team and what he can produce with them. Uh, I just wonder if on the night when you have three, four key players who just aren't there for whatever reason, who have an off night or have an off day and can't, can contribute the way we want them to, whether it's possible to do anything from the sidelines to really combat that. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think, you know, we did see sort of almost surprisingly occasional flashes of threat from Arsenal. I mean, there was that Saka shot early on, a Bermiang had that kind of header nudged effort off the outside of the post. I think what became obvious was wh- where the space was and where the threat was, was in behind Brighton's defence because they mm. squeezed so high. And, you know, in the second half, we saw more of that in terms of, you know, Smith Rowe getting in behind. And um, there was a couple where Aubameyang, I think, was just off. I think in fairness to the centre forward, that was the kind of supply, the kind mm. of delivery he needed. But we just didn't have the technical security on the day to kind of progress the ball and actually play those passes in behind. We just didn't do it significantly enough. And mm. so his game became about chasing after long goal kicks and trying to win knockdowns. And he was a pretty frustrated figure, I have to say, in the game. Um, And I'm not saying that to have a go. You know, I I just think it was miserable weather. He wasn't getting any service. uh, And he looked a bit pissed off about it. But Mm. that's that's goal scorers for you, you know? Um, Yeah. I, I don't think you need to read anything into it. I just think it tells you it wasn't his day. And, and sort of, I think my, without wishing to kind of whitewash the game, I I do think that I'm in a sort of similar place to you of thinking Brighton played very well. They did something that we really struggled to deal with in the press. I think that long-term is something that we need to look at and focus on and improve in that regard. Mm. And I'm optimistic that, you know, hopefully seeing this happen will will spark that improvement. But I, I think from our side, too many of our players just had an off day a bad day yeah yeah um before we go on to talk about some of the uh, i think there were some positive things from an arsenal perspective uh the the best moment i think of the second half came with the emil smith row chance and i saw a lot yeah. of debate about this a lot of people saying well he should have just squared it for bakayo saka and i've watched this a few times again and my thought at the time was it was a really excellent piece of defending from Shane Duffy Uh, Duffy basically cut out the pass there was one moment where maybe he could have made it but Duffy I think because of the way that he positioned himself forced Smith Rowe into a a position where he really only had one option I mean there was maybe a 5% chance of him making the pass to Saka at that point but like he had a 95% chance of going for goal and having a shot. And after scoring last weekend, I can understand why he did that. So, I mean, do, do, do you see that any differently? Do you see that as a, a creative opportunity missed? I think sometimes you've got to give credit to an opposition player for, for doing exactly what they should do in circumstances like that. I mean, if, if Gabrielle or Ben White had done that, we'd be talking about, well, that was a good piece of defending. 
I think it was a good piece of defending. I mean, I've not seen it as many times as you. In real time, I did wonder if he could could have played the pass. You know, Saka had the kind of the clearer run, but mm. I think Smith Rowe was Arsenal's best player on the day yes. for me. Um, and in a game where we really struggled to keep the ball, he he managed it very well. He was mm. very secure. Um, 24 of 25 passes. Mm. He carried the ball. He ran in behind. In fact, something I sometimes feel is that when he produces those kind of sprints, which he really can do to get in behind, sometimes I feel like the power goes out of his legs slightly when it comes to the finish. Yeah. Um, and and I, I wonder if that will come with with a bit more time, with maturity. Um, I don't know, but that's uh, something that I've noticed on one or two occasions. I think there's a thing with Arsenal where because we don't create enough chances, we place huge scrutiny on the ones that we do. Yeah, yeah. And we go, he shouldn't have actually shot at that moment. He should have shot at that moment. Mm. And he shouldn't have gone for that corner. He should have gone for that corner. Whereas I think, you know, what we really need to do is create more opportunities to score. Um, and then, you know, kind of by variance or whatever, we'll we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a discussion we've had lots of times and I'm sure we'll continue to have until such point as we as we do uh, yeah. have more attempts and, and create more opportunities. Um, maybe that's something we can talk about in, in, in a minute because if we're talking about this four-game streak in, in isolation, which I think we kind of need to do um, if we're trying to analyse this particular team rather than analyse everything or analyse Arsenal as a whole, if we're trying to analyse yeah. this new team, this little four-game chunk is, is quite an interesting one to do that because certainly we've had more shots than in the previous three games but then we haven't played Man City we haven't played Chelsea um, and everything else but I think you're right about Smith Rowe he was our best player on the night but I do also think that our central defensive partnership deserves mm. some credit as well I think one of the things that's struck me this season um, is Gabrielle's increasing or it seems to me increasing comfortableness on the ball yeah he's much more involved i think he's more accurate i know he has uh, certainly last season he had a tendency to look for something akin to that david louise glory ball over the top you know that kind of long pass it didn't mm. really come off a great deal he's cut that out quite a bit and i think his his possession stats are very good he looks increasingly comfortable on the ball he, I think in the last game and also in this game, was uh, had more possession, made more passes than Ben White. And we've talked about Ben White and what he was supposed to or is supposed to bring to the team. He's the, the passing guy, you know, all, mm. all of that. So uh, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about this partnership and where it might go. And also, just by virtue of existing in the first place, that it is a partnership into which some thought has been given. How do we build something? How do we develop something, not just in the short term, but hopefully something that can be, you know, not quite uh, in the same realm as like a... a uh, Mertesacker Koscielny or a Ferdinand Vidic thing, but I think some consistency at centre-half is really, really important for any team that wants to produce uh, consistently. And 
I'm hopeful, based on what we've seen in recent weeks, that, that Ben White and Gabrielle can do that. I think they were both very good. I think White, in particular, in the air, was really good, uh, considering that's a, a weakness some people said. He went back to his former club and really played in a way which said, look, I don't want to come back here and, and walk away a loser. Yeah, and actually, if you look at this run of games, this last four games, you know, White came in for a fair bit of criticism after the Brentford game, got given the runaround a little mm. bit by Ivan Tony. Won't be the last centre-half this season to suffer that. Um, but he's defended really well, I think, in this period. And it's interesting, if you listen to him, uh, if you listen to the manager, that's what all the emphasis is on. You know, Arteta doesn't want to talk about his ball progression, really. He wants to talk about him as a defender first. And mm. I think that's what he needs to be, first and foremost. And I agree there's a really promising partnership there. Um, you know, and you can kind of see that a little bit on the field. It does remind me, in some respects, of Mertzak and Koscielny, this sense of two players whose uh, strengths kind of assuage some of the other's weaknesses. Yeah. And you know, they were even giving each other a bit of love on social media, I noticed, on Instagram, you know, sort of <laughs> high five and pats on the back. And you don't want to read too much into that. But I think, I, I do think there's something building there. And clean sheets are a big part of that. I mean, you can't underestimate what it means to a central defender or a goalkeeper mm. to get that clean sheet. Just look at how frustrated they were when they didn't get it against Spurs. Yeah, um, And it builds momentum. And it's, I think there's a real for the first time in a while, a real kind of hunger and determination to keep that ball out of the net. And you can really palpably sense that. And I think that was valuable at Brighton. Gabrielle, by the way, playing on with two fractured teeth. Um, yeah. Fractured teeth. Can you have coming. fractured teeth? Yeah, yeah, I believe. Well, be believe me, you can. I'm the guy who's done it as well. Uh, he took a leaf out of my book there. He fractured uh, two front teeth in a, a collision. Your new favourite um, player. <laughs> I think so, you know. I mean, I've never identified with an Arsenal player more than that moment. But also the, the, the playing out from the back thing was interesting. I mean, so Ramsdale's most common pass against Spurs was Ben White. And in this game, Ramsdale passed to Ben White twice in the 90 minutes. Wow. And I think Brighton came with a plan. They know about Ben White more than anybody else. Mm. And they blocked off a lot of his lanes. They blocked off a lot of his channels and they made it difficult for us. When you look at their press, it's really interesting. You know, White's often got two men on him. Tommy Asu, sometimes completely spare. They're happy for him to have the ball because they think, well, you know, he's in the right back position. It's maybe not his strength. And that meant Gabriel doing a lot of the legwork in terms yeah, of yeah. playing out from the back. And I think he actually did it pretty well. You know, I think he was let down personally by what he had in front of him and, you know, their willingness to receive, their availability to receive, um, their willingness to take it under pressure, to control the ball. You know, I think he did as much as we can expect from him. Had we been able to get White on the ball into the game more, maybe we would have had a better game. But Brighton, I think, saw that coming. And... Uh, mm. Yeah, telling, I think, that we just, you know, we, we never went to white. Aaron Ramsdale produced a superb save uh, late in the game. It was quite interesting, wasn't it? There were pictures of him and, and David Seaman uh, doing the rounds on social media last week. I think uh, yeah. David Seaman is doing some work with, with some of the young goalkeepers at the club, and there was a picture of Ramsdale and Seaman. And there were shades of that Sheffield United save 
uh, from Ramsdale, uh, the one that Seaman made in the FA Cup. I mean, it was mm-hmm. not quite uh, the goal threat that that, that uh, Sheffield United one was, but the, the, the style of save, the way he kind of clawed the ball out from behind him, because it was a tap-in for Mope, uh, Mope if, if the ball had got there. So a really big intervention from, from Ramsdale. And I thought his interview on Sky Sports afterwards was, was really good. Um, it's rare that you see a footballer talk about some of the, what they perceive to be the deficiencies of their own performance. You know, they're usually, goalkeeper is going to come on, well, we kept the clean sheet, that's good. Uh, I think he did acknowledge that. You know, he's had three clean sheets in four games, which is um, a very good start. But he, you know, unprompted started talking about his own kicking and how he needs to improve on that kind of thing as well. So I think he did play a big role in, in keeping that clean sheet. Well, yeah, I think obviously for your, from your goalkeeper, you're looking for big moments sometimes. And that was a huge moment. I mean, honestly, I thought I thought that was in. And, and, and Lord only knows what the mood would be like this morning if we were talking about a Neil Mope late winner. Ugh away to Brighton so I think we're all grateful to Aaron Ramsdale for that I I thought he had um, one of his more difficult games maybe his most difficult game and I think that was sort of inevitable as soon as you saw the conditions I mean for any goalkeeper a pitch that wet a ball that slippery Mm. uh, probably fills you with some dread and actually there was an occasion at the other end where the Brighton goalkeeper uh, dropped the ball at one point, but we just weren't able to put him under some sustained mm. pressure. I think I think that was one of my other regrets on the day. It's like, you know, this is a really tough day for a keeper. Like, let's just try and work them or try and, you know, but we never, ever got that far, really. No, I mean, our, uh, Thomas Partey at least had it in mind. It's just yeah, uh, what, yeah, what, what, what he sees. I mean, maybe that's not the worst idea, but the execution was way off. There was a David Luiz style free kick, wasn't there? Was it in the first half? And I was like, oh my God, you know, this guy yeah. needs to score a tap in from a yard out and then sort of work his way backwards a bit before he starts shooting. It's, it, it was not a good day uh, with his shades of sort of Johnny Wilkinson on that mm. one. Yeah. But I think um, to come back to Ramsdale, yeah, I mean, listen, I think his kicking wasn't quite uh, where it has been. But I think it was a, a fantastic uh, late intervention. And I was probably more impressed with his interview than his performance. I thought he spoke really well. Mm. And it's, it, I think it's interesting. You know, he's he's only 23 years old. He's been in the club a couple of months. But it feels like he seems to be doing quite a lot of the talking at the moment um, yeah. for the first team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I, th- I guess he's a very good communicator and maybe the club sense that and lean into it if so if you've got a likable player um get him out there I well yeah the old johan juru kind of thing uh, <laughs> you know whenever yeah. there was a bad result send out you know a guy that nobody could really dislike uh, you know the old will do better and what have you but look thankfully he hasn't had to do a great deal of that uh, so far in his arsenal career the results with him and the team have been good and look there's a there's a different dynamic to it uh, at the moment I think if I'm going to be really positive and try and be positive, and and um, I'll caveat this by saying, yeah, on a personal level, I need something that I, I as a fan, can hang on to, right? So mm. I want to mm. see how this team can develop. I hope it can develop. Uh, you know, I have concerns like everybody has concerns, but I want to see if we can produce on a more consistent basis. These four games 
I'm pretty happy with 10 points from 12, with three clean sheets, with some more defensive solidity. I have worries that we don't score enough goals and take enough shots, and I don't think I'm alone in that regard. But I also think that this is a game that we might not have seen out to take a point from last season or even earlier in the season. Like I said, there were some similarities to the Brentford game uh, to me. And that was a day when our defensive shortcomings were exposed. The goalkeeper was exposed. Our central defenders, um, I know one of them played against Brentford, but were also exposed. The defensive unit was exposed. And while there were moments I think that Brighton probably could have done better with, and perhaps we rode our luck a little bit, I think sometimes you get the reward for the effort and the the defensive commitment that you put in. So if I'm looking for the positive uh, point of view from this game, it is a clean sheet. It is a point away from home against the team who played well on a night when we didn't play well, and we still just had it, just about had enough about us to, um, you know, to hang on and take a point, which may be a very useful point at some stage late in the season. Yeah, I think I think we may come to reflect upon it like that. I think, um, you know, when you don't play well, don't get beat. It's a pretty good mm. mantra to live by, and Arsenal managed that. You know, it feels like a bit of a truism to say this feels like a game they would have lost a few weeks ago, but I, I do kind of feel that way. Um, and I think the momentum, the train is slowed, but it's not derailed by this result. And fortunately, we're in a position where, you know, we come back out of the international break with two home games back to back against Crystal Palace and Aston Villa. Mm. You know, we we could we could look in quite strong shape after that. Um, again, the fixture list is not too tricky until is it that Liverpool game yeah. in in mid November. So I think I think uh, Leicester and Watford along the way. So yeah, I think I, I kind of am okay with it. You know, like I say, it's. Um, it's a slight recalibration of mood, of expectations, of assessment of where exactly we are. I think um, in a funny kind of way, not that much has changed. Although it feels like a brand new team and loads of new players, in many ways we're still a team that's sort of more defensively sound than uh, exciting in attack. That kind of remains mm. the case and that remains the thing that, you know that we that we need to improve and when you look back at the Spurs game and you reflect on the goals that we scored we marveled at the intricacy and uh the kind of inch perfect approach play how that touch just managed to find that player um and everything played out but the, i guess the problem with that is when that's your <laughs> your route to goal it really needs to work you know and there's, again, we've had this conversation many times, but is there enough of uh, the kind of the chaos effect in this Arsenal attack whereby you can score goals truly from nothing rather than building up from your goalkeeper? Yeah, not everything has to be precision. You know, you can yeah. be... Especially on a day like this. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. As I say, talking about the conditions, talking about the fact that players weren't on their game, you know... If Arsenal had Alexis Sanchez, I know it, that's a huge if, but he's the kind of player who, you know, could bring the ball down on a scrappy mm. pitch, beat a man and stick it in the net. 
and it wouldn't be team play and it wouldn't be uh, an ideal of football, but it wins points and wins games. Um, well, I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> I, I would have no problem with that kind of thing at all. I thought, you know, Alexis, no, 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 Alexis right. was an amazing player. I know he frustrated some people, but this desire to to make something happen i know there's a balance you have to try and find a balance between just being a guy who does what he wants all the time but like when you have the the ability to do some of the things that he did why wouldn't you try and i think that is definitely something that that we are missing um i don't know if we have it in the squad i know there's probably going to be a pepe discussion in part two uh, yeah. and maybe he's the the most analogous to to sanchez i'm not saying they're the same kind of player but in terms of the the chaos factor that's certainly something he is capable of but you know that's maybe maybe next in the transfer market who knows uh, i'm not quite sure but i do think more variety in terms of how we attack uh, is really important and what did you think i mean you talked about pepe what did you think of the changes and where they when they came uh, i'm just having a look now so it was pepe after about half an hour and then lacazette for Aubameyang over mm. s- after 72 minutes did you think that was soon enough. Could they have come sooner? Do you think they were the right changes? Um, I mean, Pepe for Odegaard, I think was probably, what was that, 65? 63. 63. Yeah. I mean, that's what 50, just over 15 minutes into the second half. So that was an acknowledgement pretty quickly that Odegaard's night was not a good night. Smith-Rowe went central. I'm not sure we got a great deal out of Pepe. Uh, or that Pepe gave us a great deal. Similarly, I think Lacazette looked okay, but more based on how poor Aubameyang was than what he actually did himself, if that makes sense. I don't think there was a great deal different about the way we played uh, with Lacazette on the pitch. Did you? I mean, he was sharp. I thought he was but- involved in our best moment, probably, yeah. uh, the chance to play in Smith-Rowe. I mean, I, I actually thought they were the right changes at pretty much the right time. Mm. And I thought that, you know, taking off Odegaard and Aubameyang is a pretty big call. I mean, they're sort of the senior guys in the attacking third of the team. Um, And I thought Arteta got that right. I mean, it sort of became clear, I think, that this was a day that maybe might suit Lacazette uh, better than Aubameyang in terms of the type of striker that they are. Um, Mm. I think it was this fixture last season... Lacazette came on and scored the winning goal. Um, yeah, it was. I, I yeah. think I'm right after a Saka run down the right hand side, and and uh, yeah, I, I do think. I mean, it, it, I'm literally thinking of that one instance where he laid the ball back. I think it was to Party to play in Smith Rowe, mm. um, and I thought that we had missed that. You know that Aubameyang hadn't been able to do that. On the day. Well, that, that's what I mean. It's like he just executed a first-time pass better than Aubameyang had. Um, yeah. I don't think it, you know, I don't think he was um, game-changing or anything like that. I think Aubameyang was really poor. Lacazette did pretty much what you would expect a professional player to do. Yes, I think that's fair. I right. think that's fair. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I sort of—it's difficult to know. I mean, I guess what we're saying is that we kind of think um, Arsenal played badly and their players played badly and therefore, you know, we got what we got. It's difficult to... 
I think we need to see more, basically, of this team is how I feel. I feel like I need to see more of these mm. 10, 11 guys um, over the kind of next three or four games to know if this was uh, the spell breaking and this is who we are now and we can't play out from the back anymore or if this was just a bad day at the office. Maybe a little from column A, a little from column B, you know, because there are similarities to a lot of what we've seen from Arsenal under Mikel Arteta. And I think where this this idea of a a clean slate comes from, in a way, is because of all the caveats that were applied, whether you agree with them or not, they were applied to those opening three games. Mm-hmm. He's got his players, the transfer window closed, he's got them in the team, and I think there was a sense that, okay, well now, let's see what you can do. And what they've done has been uh, good, when it comes to results, um, we need to see more. I agree with you. We need to see more. There are some promising signs. There are still some worrying aspects to the way that we play. But what we have to do, and we said this as well, is that that we have to get points on the board while we're developing and, and uh, building this new-ish team. You know, it's not completely 11 new players. There are some new... Um, new players in it, but we have to get points on the board on the board while we're going, and at least we've done that in these four games. Another four games before we play Liverpool, I think we'll be in a better place to talk about, you know, what we're doing and how we're doing it. Yeah, and that's what Arte- by by getting these results, mm. particularly the derby result, Arteta has bought himself that time. You know, mm. and um, I think most fans are. Still intrigued to see uh, if this team can flourish and and produce the kind of performance they did against Spurs a little bit more regularly. All right. Well, look, let's take a break here. We do have some questions about uh, more on the Brighton game and some general stuff as well. So we will take a break and come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog, and also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. I did like this from the Discord from Dazzy Pepper. He said, why are we burning so much fossil fuel sending pricks like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson to space when they could easily just catch a ride on one of Thomas Partey's shots? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Very true. I mean, can I ask, how much does it irk you, the Thomas Party shooting thing? Does it bother you? Does it no, annoy you? not really. I just wish he would do it better. I mean, if he's doing it, it must be because he feels like he can do it. I don't know if all those years playing deep at Atletico Madrid have caused him some measure of frustration. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's oh, here like I am. That, it? There's the goal. I'll shoot. I don't know. Yeah. I, I assume... I assume that there is a level of ability there which we're not seeing. So, he's done it previously. You know, he scored goals from distance for Atleti and he, he's done it for Ghana as well. I mean, he, he came pretty close against Spurs, didn't he, with a, a nice effort from the edge of the box. He did, and there was one actually which wasn't too far away where I think he probably should have hit the target against Brentford. I think uh, he should have hit the target. He really yeah, should have, yeah, where Brighton, yeah. It was laid off to him on just outside the box and he kind of curled it, you know, that kind of, pass into the bottom corner type finish which he really has to to get on target but no it doesn't I mean it frustrates me when a player when any professional footballer just smashes a ball over the bar you know from 30 yards I really it's one of my big bugbears I think if you're a professional footballer and all you do all day is play football you should be better at that than yeah. most players are. Maybe I'm just being harsh, but I feel like they should be better at shooting than, um, you know, than your regular amateur Sunday league team. You see them all warming up and, you know, what's the warm-up? Everyone's just peppering shots at a goalkeeper who stands there doing nothing while they all fly miles over the bar. Uh, but no, look, I, I, I like the idea of... I mean, we talked about it at the end of, of part one where having something a bit different to your attack is important. And a player who is willing to shoot from distance gives you that little bit of something different where the opposition perhaps aren't quite sure, is he going to play a pass? Are they going to work the channels? Is this the precision build-up? They're going to get it out to the fullback and they're, they're going to cross it. What yeah, are they yeah. going to do? If they know that you're only going to do that, it becomes much more easy to defend. Therefore, it creates maybe a bit of space for a central midfielder to have a shot. So I'm not frustrated by the idea of it. I'm very frustrated by the execution. Yes, I, I actually agree. I think this was a day to have a go and mm. try and test the goalkeeper and bounce the ball in front of him and all those things. It's just you need the ball to be vaguely near the goal for that to happen. And, and the free kick one, mm. that one, I think, was a, a sort of a bridge too far. Because, um, yeah. you know, you've got options there. You can lift it into the box. You can do something with it. Yeah. It just felt crazy. I kind of understand, though, why we didn't lift it into the box. Because it's it, so central. Yeah, a little bit central. Also, you're lifting it into a box with a bunch of six foot three, six foot seven defenders. And it's not like we have that that kind of presence in there. I know Gabriel is pretty good in the air, scored a few goals Tommy from Asu. set pieces. Yeah. We don't know what Tommy Asu is really like with, with, with set pieces or in the air. It, no. He didn't have his best day in the air, in fairness, from a defensive point of view. We don't have a lot to trouble a defense like Brighton's, particularly from those situations. But I do think you can work a free kick like that a bit better rather than just, you know... 
is a tribute to a tribute to David Luiz in as much as Tommy Asu's uh, throw-ins were a tribute to Hector Bellerin at times, weren't they? <laughs> yes, they were. And I agree, he had, I think he had his most difficult day uh, mm. in his very short Arsenal career. But I think it's one that hopefully he'll he'll grow from, you know. And, and uh, I mean, that Cucurello played left back for Brighton, left wing back was a very, he was a live wire. He was good, you. wasn't he? Yeah, I, I yeah. like, I'm not going to say I enjoyed his performance. Uh, like if I'd seen him do that against Spurs, I would definitely have enjoyed that performance from him. Yeah. Uh, but he did look a good player, all right. Um, with some unusual hair type thing on. Mm. Did he have like a little yeah. beads around it or something? I don't know. Listen, Whatever works for him. Can I ask you a question then? Can we get on with the questions? Yeah, go on. This one comes from Anu Nande on Twitter, who's at Anu Nande, and says, based on how we've played since our last league loss, what is the one area that you and James think should be our priority for improvement once we return from the international break? I'm reminded of that sort of uh, David Moyes quote about his Manchester United side. You know? <laughs> just, <laughs> if we were going to just improve in defending midfield play and in our attack or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, immediately off the Brighton game, y- your instinct is almost to say the playing out from the back because uh, it really felt like we were inhibited in that regard and it just meant that we couldn't get our game going but I but when I think about how we did that against Norwich against Burnley and against Spurs that was you know markedly better than we've seen so I don't know if Brighton are particularly good or we were particularly bad um, but that's one of the things that springs to mind however you know the emphasis has to be on the other end of the pitch really Mm. Um, but I suppose it's kind of a you know, can we get that far um, without being able to actually progress the ball out from the back line? Do I don't you, know. Do you think there is a direct correlation between our attacking effectiveness and our ability to play the ball out from the back? Like, if we don't yeah, play the ball out from the back, are we more muted as an attacking force? I think this team are, because I think that that's how they're built. I Mm. think that when you think about our good moves, our good goals, it really does stem from that um, approach play in our own third. I'm not saying it should be like that or that that's even a good thing, but I think there is a bit of a correlation. Do do you think there is or do you think there's distinct? I think there might be. I'm not 100% on this, but I think there's probably a lot of emphasis on that in training and, and, you know, these five lanes and, and where everybody is supposed to be at, at whatever, you know, phase of the attack or whatever yeah. it might be. And maybe just not quite enough, I don't know, whether it's individual creativity or whatever it might be, I don't know. But I think I'd have to go back and look. And maybe we need more of a sample size as well, but but I do wonder if there is some connection between the games in which we don't play out well from the from the back and and how how much threat we pose. Then again, I looked at the stats of the Brentford game, and apparently we had twenty two attempts 
in that game, and we didn't play the ball out well from the back at all. So I could be wrong, but it feels yeah, like when we yeah. when we score, a lot of it tends to stem from from passing moves which begin in our own half. That is true, but I mean, you know, if you think about the passes from the back that that really catch the eye, or that you go, oh, you know, that led to something. Often they are passes that beat lines, that beat players. Mm. You know, I'm even thinking about Ramsdale and I can think of passes from him into Odegaard on the halfway line, say. And that's actually where things get exciting when we when we don't have to sort of tip-tap round the outside, yeah. when we're actually able to find spaces, find lanes and progress quickly. Um, I guess that's what I would want to emphasize and to be fair i do think we were doing that better prior to the brighton game mm. um and i hope we will do it better again but it's difficult you know i'm not a coach as well i don't know how to fix all the problems um that we see in this team mm. and i just hope uh somebody <laughs> more qualified than me does yeah i mean i think i would agree that the the focus has to be on goal scoring if you look at the premier league table we we still have yeah. a negative goal difference as a team we don't score enough goals if we if we don't address that problem quickly yeah then we're not going to make the kind of progress that is required and that is the no, bottom and line I, and, I, and i don't think it's hugely realistic to continue keeping clean sheets at this sort of rate um i just think you know you'll have days where it goes against you you give away a penalty or yeah you know foul on the keeper doesn't get given and that ball ends up in the net um clean you know, sheets I, I sorry carry on sorry. no no you go i was just gonna say clean sheets feel quite precious because we don't score enough exactly you know yeah and then in this run you know one goal against norwich one goal against burnley no goals against Brighton, we can look at those games and say, well, there were opportunities maybe to make more mm. and score more, but we didn't. Mm -hmm. We didn't. And that's what we really, really need to start doing. Mm. Um, we were very clinical against Tottenham. But again, we're not going to be that clinical all the time. We have to create more chances in order to, on average, lift those numbers up. Yeah. It's it's what I said in the previous part about how things feel very different, but in some ways they feel very similar. Mm -hmm. That remains the the key problem. Yeah, um, I mean that has to be the emphasis. Scoring more goals gives you margin for error. Like you say, you can't always keep a clean sheet, but conceding one goal doesn't really matter that much if you score three or four. You know, you get margin for error, and the reason why games often feel so tight is because we never give ourselves that much we had it against spurs um but we haven't had it too often um you know norwich and burnley as you say were one goal leads where i think on on balance we deserve to win both of those games but it yeah. only takes a corner or a set piece or you know a mistake penalty like you say a piece of individual brilliance from an opposition player and all of a sudden those three points are just one point and that's you know that's very different so we have to start scoring more goals and that is that is the that is the that's got to be the the, the key area that that Arteta has to make improvement in and very very fast
Agreed. Agreed. Mm. Um, well, we spoke about the overlapping Brighton wing-back, Cucurella. There's been a few questions today about our left wing-back, Kieran Tierney. Mm. Jamie Murphy on Twitter said, what do you make of Kieran Tierney at the moment? Personally, I feel he hasn't started the season well at all. Do you think this is a result of him playing too much in the last 12 months due to us being heavily reliant on him? Yeah, I saw a few questions about uh, Kieran Tierney. I think it's fair to say that he hasn't really hit top form this season. Yeah. I think he's, he's um, I don't know if he's fatigued. I don't know if it's to do with the way the team is playing. Um, yeah, I, I just wonder if it's a, if it's a dip in form. I don't have any doubts about his quality. I don't have any doubts about his commitment or, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but I do think he is a player who, who isn't quite at it. The same as Bakayo Saka, who I know um, has made some contributions this season. But when you look at him overall, he he just looks a little tired. And I think the same is true of Tierney. I think he looks a little bit tired and he has played a lot for for Scotland. He played a lot for us. Um, so, yeah, I, I it's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, what do you... He's very much a, when he's fit, he's a first name on the team sheet kind of player. But when that player isn't at the races or, or isn't quite producing what you want, what is the right way to do it? Is it to let him play his way back into form, to show faith in him and to give him confidence? Or is it maybe to let him have a couple of games off? I, I don't quite know. Um, I, it's I think it's isn't it? Because yeah. we. We sort of deliberately brought in a player um, who's like a very clear understudy mm. to him. You know, it's not like certain other areas of the team where the competition's quite close or is not a huge difference. I mean, you know, in terms of experience, there's a, a big gap between Tierney and Tavares. And I think right now, in terms of ability, there's a substantial gap. Um, so, it, you know, there's a risk in taking him out of the side. Um, mm. I, I agree he's not quite been as good as he was, um, certainly for the majority of last season. I think that's at both ends of the pitch. I think defensively, um, he's not quite been at the level. I think in some challenges, he's coming off second best, whereas previously he wouldn't have done. And going forward, uh, he's not been quite the outlet. I mean... Mm. there's an extent to which some of that's positive. You know, there were times last season when our only tactic was to give the ball to Kieran Tierney and let him thump in crosses from the byline. And we've not doing that with the same frequency, which I think is a, a good evolution. Uh, but when he is arriving in those positions, maybe he's not uh, finding that final pass as well as he was. Mm. I, I, I think it's probably just form. Maybe fatigue is part of it, but it feels like it's form. He's got an interesting role in the team where he's constantly asked to bomb on. I mean, the stamina demands on him are mm. significant because when we defend, he's in the last line of defence. And when we attack, he's in the first line of attack. Yeah. Um, yeah, people talk so all he, the time, don't they, about how re really we're playing with the back three because yeah. Tommy Asu comes inside to, to fill some of that space, whereas Tierney is basically up and down that left wing the whole time. There's a lot, like you say, there is a lot asked of him. 
Yeah. So physically, I think it's extremely demanding. Um, but I, I would agree his form's not quite been there. But I'm not sure I'd be comfortable swapping Tavares in. Um, I just don't know enough about him yet to sort of know what sort of risk that incurs. Yeah. Um, what would you... I mean, I mean, with one game a week, I feel like he has got ample recovery time, you know? Yeah, I don't think it's just a fatigue thing. I think it is a a form thing as much as anything. Um, players have fluctuations in form, don't they? So he's got a couple of games coming up for for Scotland during the interlull. Um, but I suppose the, the one thing you would say about this upcoming interlull is that we don't play again. Is it a Monday? It's a Monday night game, isn't it? It is, yeah. So if they're playing, uh, Tierney is playing Saturday and Tuesday. So that gives him basically six days to recover from those games. So I don't think it's fatigue. I, I do think it's form. The question for Mikel Arteta is, how does he deal with it? Does he take him out? Because he is an important player. He is a big piece of uh, of this team. Or does he give him a chance to, to play his way back into it? So mm. we'll see. Okay, here's a question from the Discord from Blake. And he says, It looks like Pepe has lost his starting place again. By the summer, he will have been here three years and still hasn't nailed down a starting place. Two years left on his deal. Do we have a decision to make on him in the summer? And if so, do you think the, what do you think the club should do? He's, uh, or he will be 27, so he might also be thinking about that himself if this situation remains the same. I think that's a good point, and one I hadn't necessarily considered, um, that as he reaches his late 20s, maybe he thinks, I need to play more frequently. I don't agonise too much over him being out of the starting eleven right now. I just feel like as the season wears on, there's going to be plenty of minutes for a player like him, especially given what he brings in terms of goals and productivity. Um, do Arsenal have a decision to make on him? Yes. Um, because you know you don't want to get in a situation where you've got a £72 million a uh, player who costs you an awful lot of money getting mm. close to leaving on a free transfer. I know it's not realistic to get anything like that back for him, um, but you don't want to risk losing that player for nothing. What will happen, that is really harder to say. I I think, I think he'll stay at Arsenal, um, mm. partly because I'm not sure... I mean, the club would stand to make such a such a significant loss on him, <laughs> and some would say, "Well, that's better than not." But uh, I just, I'm not sure the value really in moving him on, because I do think that he has attributes that are useful within the squad, even if it's not always in the starting eleven. Um, mm. What do you think? I think his future at Arsenal is probably very much tied to Mikel Arteta's. Right, yeah. Like, I think if Arteta stays, it's going to be more difficult for Pepe. Mm. I just sense a slight incompatibility. We have a situation where we've got Bakayo Saka and more and more it seems like the right-hand side is his best position. 
even though, you know, he is good enough to play in a number of positions. More and more, it looks like his best position is on the right. Now, look, there could be a chance for Pepe after the international break because Saka picked up a bit of an injury. Maybe it's, uh, we don't have any details of it yet, but it looked a little bit like a hamstring strain, didn't it? So that could be three weeks. So it might be a case of Pepe starts. We talked about the attacking chaos or, or the, the, the player who could give us something a little bit different. And I think we've seen at times Pepe has that ability. He has that quality to give you a goal kind of out of nothing. He's maybe the only player, apart from Saka, in the team who can who can do that. You know what I mean? A, a shot from distance or a curler on the run or whatever it might be. Yeah. But I just don't know... I, I don't know how Arteta, or if he can, get that end product out of him on a consistent basis. It is a bit weird that like we're nearly two and a half years into his time here, and he hasn't absolutely nailed down one position for himself, considering the size of the transfer and, and everything else. But is that... I mean, I hear what you're saying about Arteta and it being linked to that, but is not the Saka thing in itself a problem for Pepe? Yeah, 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 sure. Sure, it is, yeah. Uh, and if Arteta goes, Saka will still be who he is and, and probably the number one choice in that position. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, the way I look at it is I look at all the big teams, all the good teams have options in attack. And I think Pepe has the quality and the ability to be one of those options for us going forward. And I like having him there mm. as an option. I think, so therefore the most compelling thing to for me is like, does he see it that way? Well, that's it. Um, I mean, that, I think that's a really big part of it is what does he want? Does he yeah. want to be a, a sub? Does he want to be this guy who could give us something a little bit different when when plan A doesn't go to to as well as we would like, a sort of plan B guy from the bench. And I'm not saying that's all he is or all he could be. I think there's real talent there and there's real, some excitement to him as a player, which we don't have in, in some of our other players. And, and I don't dislike him. I just... I just don't know that Arteta is fully convinced by him in any position. And that might be an Arteta problem more than a Pepe problem, you know? It might be, yeah. I think I think there's probably a bit of blame on both sides personally. Like I think I don't even think it's blame. I just think it's it's a it's a scenario which happens at a lot of football clubs. That yeah, a, yeah, there's yeah. a slight I, incompatibility between a player and a manager and a player or a manager and a player. It's not a mm. big, huge, like, uh, drama or anything like that. But I think it's there. True. But I, I think that, what, how can I put it? Maybe the stats proved me wrong on this and I, and I don't have them in front of me to say. But my feeling is that when Pepe has been afforded regular football, he hasn't delivered with consistency. So I can understand a manager's reservations as well. Is that true, though? I mean, last season, remember, not that he sat out the first half of the season, but we had that terrible thing going on where where we were trying to make Willian work, and most of it came at the expense of Pepe. 
Yeah. And when Pepe yeah. played more regularly in the second half of the season, he produced. I thought it was true in the first season that Arteta was here as well, that towards the end of that first season, Pepe was, it looked like something had clicked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've and then had he, it that feeling. Before. Yeah, we've had it, and then it just hasn't, whether that's to do with the way Arteta's managed those situations or something else. But like, you know, I always, I always thought it was strange that when Pepe finished the season really strongly with that FA Cup final performance, which was one of his best games ever for Arsenal, even if he didn't score, I think it's widely recognized as a, a really good performance from him rather than sort of give him the confidence and say, look, this is your position, you know, grow and build and develop. And here's the trust we brought in a clapped out old banger to fucking play ahead of him. I mean, what does that yeah. do to to him? So I think they're, I think he can produce if he's given game time, but I just wonder if we're not, if the way Arteta wants his teams to play doesn't really work with a player like Pepe. And again, that could be, and probably is, more of an Arteta problem than a Pepe problem. Yeah, I think it's, I think as well, like, he left him out for the derby and that was the right decision. You know, he, he, he it paid dividends what, what mm. Arteta did in the derby and put Saka on the right, worked, etc. Mm. But that was that game. You know, and I think there will be games where that's not the right decision and where Pepe mm. does need to play. And personally, maybe I'm wrong. I think he will play. I think he will get plenty of minutes this season. Um, I'm not stressing out that Pepe is never going to play again. Uh, I think those opportunities should and will come. Mm. If they don't, then I think we can say safely there's something very wrong there. Yeah. Um, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, there's more questions about that. Yeah. So, Rafi Schreiber says, now that Arteta may be finding his best 11, I guess this is related, do you worry about squad harmony? Many first-team players will be playing very little and there is no European competition to rotate and give players minutes. Young players need to develop and the older boys will want to play. Yeah. I think that's a challenge. It is going to be a challenge. Um, I think some pecking orders are beginning to be fairly well established, right? Like Ben White and Gabriel, we talked about Ben White and Gabriel. If they stay fit and stay good, then they're going to play. And Rob Holding and Pablo Marie are not, unless, you know, they play in the Carabao Cup which is probably what will happen to an extent. Um, you know, Cedric, if, if Tommy Asu stays good, Cedric's not playing. Callum Chambers is not playing. If Kieran Tierney refines his form, Tavares, or Tavares is not playing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are scenarios or situations that he is going to have to manage uh, because players want to play. Most players want to play. They don't want to sit on the bench. You know, there's a Leno situation as well. Um, He's going to want to play. And there comes a point, I think, when a player realizes, well, to play regularly, I'm going to have to leave. But that's just a fact of life in football. Um, 
if Arsenal are winning games all the time with Ben White and Gabriel and Tommy Asu and all of those kind of guys, you know, Holding and Marie can have no um, complaints about not getting any football. So I think it's dependent on results a bit as well, you know. But there is going to be, or there are going to be players who are disappointed and players who are frustrated and players like Lacazette, for example, even if it's his last season at Arsenal, will probably be frustrated that he hasn't played uh, as much as he would have liked. So that is a challenge for a manager to keep that harmonious and keep that squad and keep those players ready for when they are actually needed because there are going to be suspensions and injuries and things like that. So it is a, it is a challenge for sure. Because we don't have many injuries at the moment, there's a few players kind of not even making the bench right now. Mm. Um, Elneny bumped up to the bench for the Brighton game with Shaka out, but Chambers, Marie, Kalasnach, Balogun and Ketia, they haven't figured on the bench for the last two games. Mm. Martinelli, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing is, the likes of Balogun and Ketia, maybe even Martinelli, will get minutes with the 23s. I think people like Chambers and Marie, Kalasinac, they're just in proper limbo, right? Mm. Where they're not really going to get any game time whatsoever. And I am beginning to wonder um, uh, what they'll do about Callum Chambers' contract. I know the club have got an option for an extra year, but I don't know whether they've triggered that or not um i feel like it's his fall has been pretty dramatic in that a few weeks ago he looked like the starting right back um and now he's seemingly third mm. choice not even on the bench um so yeah I, I i do i worry about harmony i just think it's the problem you know of not having european football and it's a blessing and a curse the blessing is you get all that preparation time. You get to keep a consistent eleven. The curse is you can't afford game time to those sort of fringe members of your squad. But well, I mean, the other thing is that it's the kind of European football that you have. What you know you what mean? I mean? I mean that, like, if you're in the Europa League, yeah, then it's much easier to, yeah, you know, you throw out your second in string. the Champions League group stage. Yeah, no. in the Champions League group stage, you want your your best players playing in those games. And then it comes down to the weekend and look, there might be some enforced changes because of like injuries or niggles or fatigue or whatever it might be. You're trying to prevent an injury, which may not be, you know, allow you to put out your best team. But if you're playing in the Champions League against better teams, it's going to be basically your first choice 11 at the weekend and your first choice 11 in, in midweek. So mm. the kind of European football that we've become accustomed to allows us to play fringe players, bloody young players, and that can be useful. But it feels a bit of a bit sort of like a safety blanket in a way. You know what I mean? Because this is an issue that all managers have to deal with and how they keep their squads competitive and um together is is something that top managers have got to deal with and he's just going to have to deal with that so yeah absolutely here is one from the discord and it comes from nile mitch 14 and he says as we're going into another interlull i suppose now is a good time to ask your opinion on arson wenger's idea for a world cup every two years as well as his idea of reduced international breaks involved with that are there parts of his plan that you like does a world cup every two years diminish the value of the cup is it too much football crammed into the calendar uh, year now so um 
So the first thing I say is, if it was anybody but Arsene Wenger, I probably wouldn't give it the time of day. But it's Arsene Wenger. And I think he is a man with football's best interests at heart. Mm. Even though he works for FIFA. Mm. Um, mm. You don't agree with that? I, I think Arsene Wenger's view on this as a FIFA employee is very different from what his view on this would be if you were still a club manager. Like, I think there's some common sense to the idea that there should be fewer international breaks and that players' schedules should not be quite as hectic as they are. I completely, I think everybody agrees with that. But I, I think the idea of a World Cup every two years is terrible. I really do. And I don't see that as compatible with Arsene Wenger's views as a club manager in all the years that he was with us as manager, I don't believe this is an idea that he would have given credence to while he was, you know, in in the hot seat with us. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, so I'm often very sort of traditionalist about these things, but mm. I'm not as opposed to it as I thought I would be. I just, I, I just wonder if like, why is it every four years? Like, it feels like quite an arbitrary thing. And we're like, well, it's that's tradition now that it's every four years. But I feel like the world that we live in is so much more international and so much more fast and things move so quickly. There don't seem to be the barriers to stop it being every two years that there might have been 60 years ago. And I, I can see the logic at least in why you would do it you know well i can see why fifa would want it because it generates so much revenue for them i don't think this is an idea that is based on what is best for football what's the best thing for football supporters what is the best thing for footballers i you know i can't i just cannot believe that you know no matter how they dress it up, I don't believe that FIFA, with their track record, that we can take at face value this this idea that this is for the good of the game. It's for the good of FIFA and for the good of their bank balance and for the good of the people at that organization who have absolutely corrupted football to an enormous degree. And I think there is some logic if you say, look, get rid of all the other crappy to we don't need a confederations cup for example sure right but at the same time why shouldn't there be a copa america why shouldn't there be an african cup of nations um the you know tournaments that might get waylaid or or diminish because of those um you know the european championship so what are you going to have a euros one year and a world cup the next year I know. I think, uh, presumably. I mean, that's the problem, really, is obviously that FIFA and UEFA are separate entities. Yeah, exactly. The intersection of those two things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, look, I, I suppose, isn't, isn't uh, it yeah, a bit like... I, sorry, I, I was going to ask you. I mean, isn't FIFA saying a World Cup is, uh, you know, the best thing for football? Trust us, this is what is the best thing for the game that you love. A bit like a corrupt political party telling you that voting for them again is in your best interests as a citizen. It's hard to, it's hard to take that seriously. Uh, if you're, you know, if you've lived through 
what that regime or whatever has inflicted upon you. That's true. That's true. I mean, like I said, I give this more credence because it's Arsene Wenger, but maybe that makes me credulous. I don't know. I, I think there is a logic to stripping out some of the international football that afflicts the Premier League, the domestic seasons, and trying to slim that down and keep what is good of it. And I think this is a way you could do it. Personally, I hope it doesn't happen. Like, I like the four-year cycle. But I can see Arsene's point. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, Thierry Henry came out in opposition to it uh, this week. Uh, sort of interesting, kind of like father-son conflict there. Mm. I think players will be opposed to it for sure. Um, and, I, and that will probably win out. Was it? But Was it Thierry who said, why do they keep asking all these old players? Why don't they ask the players who are playing now? Is it him? <laughs> I, don't know. I, I don't know. It may have been. It, it may have been. But look, the the demands on players are huge. Yeah. If there can be some way of minimizing the disruption to like we have an interlull now, we've got another one. We had one last month, we've got another one now, we're gonna have another one in November. It's it's not ideal for players or clubs or managers, you know, to have this sort of stop-start thing going on with, with a season. I would applaud any reasonable efforts to try and minimize the disruption to the domestic leagues. Yeah. I just do not believe that a World Cup every two years is anything other than FIFA trying to place a stranglehold on the game They've seen over the last 20, 25 years how club football has dominated uh, the world in terms of media, broadcast, marketing, um, the financial, um, the ability of football to generate massive, massive amounts of money has reached incredible levels beyond anything I thought anybody uh, would have thought and that that's the motivation that's what i think the motivation is it's not because they want to make football better it's because the genie is well and truly out of the bottle and they want their slice of the genie more regularly yeah i mean it's reminiscent in some ways of the super league stuff in that it's like a repackaging of the sport and it's uh set up against you know, a lot of ideals and a lot of traditions. But I suspect, like the Super League, if it happened, there probably would be demand. Um, I think that actually FIFA are right that they could sell a World Cup every two years. Of course, I, I, yeah. I think that's true. But I... I mean, we could just, you know, um, uh, drill for all the oil in the world until there's no more oil and then everything will be okay, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? There is a there is a balance. You have to find a balance between, you know, what the demand says. And look, there there this idea surely is based on plenty of research. You know, would you get the sponsors for a World Cup every two years? Yeah, they must you know, know the answers they, to yeah, those questions. You would think, of course. Like, but, I mean, if there's a World Cup on, everyone's going to watch it. Mm. I don't think. I don't think it will. I don't think people will um, will say, well, 
Nah, I'm not going to watch that World Cup. You know, these World Cups come around too often. I've had enough of the World Cup. I don't think that's what will happen as football fans. But I also think that, no. that, that what makes the World Cup special is the fact that it isn't every year or every two years. It is a thing where it's such a th- it's such a thing to look forward to because it's happening. Uh, the scarcity makes it valuable, if that makes sense. Relative scarcity makes it more valuable and more interesting. And if yeah, they yeah. do it every two years, I I think they they take something away from it. Yeah, very possibly. I mean, I, yeah, I think, like I said before, I think in the modern world that every four years thing, it does feel quite um, like something a little bit from antiquity, mm. but that might be what makes it special. Uh, and if you lose that, mm. maybe it would lose some of that sheen. Mm. I, d- I, I can't see it happening, to be honest with you. I think there'll be sufficient opposition, but... I don't really fully understand all the practicalities either in terms of like what it would actually alleviate for mm. players um, because I think that will make the difference. Clubs clubs and uh, national associations, I don't know, I was going to say something, but then I thought actually this will probably all just be decided by money at the end of the day. <laughs> well, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, if there was genuine uh, consideration for player welfare and things like that, there would be a defined... Um, time off period every year sure. for players there would yeah. be like why do clubs go on on preseason tours it's not really to play games and get match fitness because they could do that just as easily at home it's to to like the 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 nice way of putting it is that it's a way for clubs and teams to go and connect with fans abroad, which it is. And I've experienced that and it's wonderful. And it really is to see, um, you know, fans who would ordinarily never get a chance to see their team play, go play a game. That is a brilliant, brilliant aspect of, of, uh, preseason tours and things like that. Yeah. But they're not designed for player welfare. They're not really designed for, um, for, the, the physical preparation for a league because you wouldn't engage in, you know, that kind of uh, air travel or whatever it might be. It is a way of marketing and branding and generating revenue and, and getting paid to play in, in tournaments. Like what was the one, what was the name of the cup that there w- the we were on? Pulled out of. No, there was, yeah, there was the one we pulled out of this year, but the one we were on in America a couple of years ago, I can't remember the Champions Cup or whatever it's called, yeah, you know. Yeah. Champions of what? Come on. You know? So the yeah. clubs are being paid and incentivized um, financially to go and do these things. So you're right. It'll come down to money in the end. And this conversation will come up again. I don't know if you saw, I think it might have been David Ornstein in The Athletic had a story about the Premier League engaging in conversations about playing meaningful games abroad um, in the future. I mean, that's... I mean, I think, it, yeah. I think it would start with something like these kinds of pre-season tournaments, you know, but... Um, well, a meaningful game can only be a game in which Premier League points are paid for. And how do you as a fan deal with the idea let's say it's arsenal versus fucking who knows arsenal versus brighton but the game is taking place in new york or something how do you as an arsenal season ticket holder reconcile that idea you can't it's It's impossible it's very difficult 
but I, I also am mindful of the idea, like you said, of fans elsewhere who don't get that opportunity. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to no, because you- of my traditional values discount that entirely but but yeah i don't think it is but i don't necessarily think that if you're a fan of arsenal in australia or america or south america or wherever in the world that you can think you're hard done by because arsenal don't play in your country in the premier league i mean that is not what no you knew that when you got into it exactly you know so yeah it's yeah it's all ahead of us and look something will happen that will happen it it will of course because ultimately it will come down to arsenal or whatever football club or however many football clubs get engaged or involved in this kind of things dealing with the disappointment of 60,000 home fans versus the idea of generating x amount of uh, new fans in a yeah, in a market that they can screw for as much as they can, you know. And again, I want to make it clear: I'm not in any way being disparaging towards um, fans who aren't from London or anything like that. Of course, I mean I'm not. So you know, it's not that. It's just about about the decisions that are made about football. More and more have nothing to do with football and everything to do with money and bank balances but then we knew that so yes we did I mean if you know if the Super League uh, experience didn't show us that then nothing All right, look we're going to leave it there for today Um, thank you very much indeed for being here as always we're going to do something on Patreon uh, in midweek so join us for that on Wednesday patreon.com forward slash arsblog or you can also read the uh, poorly drawn month review which I'm very happy with is good fun yeah that's great check that out Uh, very very fun with uh, poorly drawn Arsenal Uh, so check that out right now Uh, for now though we'll leave it there and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.